0: Daf Gimel. Uh, we have some fantastic tangents today. We're starting off with a few statements by the Yirbi, Yir-Bi Yirmiyah, or in the name of the uh, we saw one already, so we're going to see three more, and then we're going to go into Megillah and its relative value compared to other mitzvot, like sacrifices, Talmud Torah, uh, private study, public study of Torah, how about Met Mitzvah? Uh, so that'll be really fascinating to see the relative uh, priority of each of these misfot. And then we'll end with a series of statements by be Yoshua ben Levi. So we begin and end with series. Uh, so these uh, do not necessarily have anything to do with Megillah, but because we already saw Debi Admiyat and some say Rabbi tell us about the distance of a meal, which is the same as from Khamatan to Tiberia, we quote him again. The letters mem nun pe, and chaf, these are all letters that have uh, two forms a form that when it's in the middle of a word, and a different form, a longer form, where when it's at the end of a word, right? Mem sofit, these are all sofit letters. Uh, if you want to remember them, you can think of the tikanta Shabbat. Uh, so uh, that's all those words at the end of the paragraph are the sofit letters. OK, so he says that they, the fact that they have two different forms and uh, the ending form is usually one that's longer, that goes under the line. That was instituted by the tzofim, by the prophets. OK, so that's a statement. Now we're going to analyze it. Hold on. Is that true? The uh, Pasuk says these are the mitzvot, and that means that no, no prophet is allowed to say anything new. Uh, only Moshe Rabbein is the only prophetic lawgiver. No navi is allowed to say any laws after that. So how could you tell me that the Sofim, that the prophets uh, dictated that we should write these five letters in a certain way? That's a new law. There's another tradition that the Luchot were given it says mise In Peshat, that just means that they're double-sided. Uh if you know he was writing one and then it gets to the end of the end of the of the column, flip turns it over and starts writing on the other side. But the Midrash says that they were uh, that the letters went all the way through and it could be read uh, miraculously both sides even though has to be right to left on both on both sides and if so most letters um can can uh uh, you can write in such a way but mem and samech uh samech since it's a since it's an o has no connection so that means you have to have a piece of uh stone Floating in the mid air. If you remember how we had, used to have stencils and the stencils, you have to have some line for the O. So samech and mem also regarding this talking about the mem Sofit, which is has a, is a complete circle, is not to not connected to anything, and therefore those would have to be uh, standing by way of a miracle. And Talmud Yerushalmi, by the way, mentions uh, that. Uh, the, since uh, there's an opinion that the original luchot were given in Ketav Ivri, not in the uh, alphabet we have now, and in that alpha, that ancient writing, it's the ayin that looks like an o. So according to this midrash, the ayin would be the one that was floating. Okay. Anyway, the point is that um, here, here it says that the mem uh, the mem had a certain look, and so this is it goes all the way back to the beginning. So what are you tell, Why are you telling me that? The uh, Sophit forms of the letters were instituted by the prophets if it has to go all the way back to the original uh, uh, law giving of the Torah. In Mihavahavu. Oh, so we take this back and we say what we we clarify. In fact, there were both types of letters: a regular sofit and a mem Sofit, a regular sadi and a sadi sofite. Uh, the problem is we didn't know which when it goes in the middle and which one goes at the end. It got mixed up. And then the prophets came and clarified for us that. The smaller forms of the letters, uh, those go uh, in the middle of a word, and the longer forms of the letters go at the end. Okay, um, if we look historically at writing uh, from ancient times as uh, yes, uh, archaeologist or paleographer, they do find that there are these two forms of letters. However, it seems that in the ancient uh, um, Aramaic script and the Hebrew shared, the Aramaic script, uh, the, the, the script that we know, called Ketav Ashuri. In Aramaic script, the Sofit forms of the letters were the original forms of the letters. And then over time, uh, because it's kind of hard to write a long letter that goes under, uh, the, uh, under the, the line, uh, it's hard to write that. So they became condensed, and that's how we have the medial form of the letter. However, at the end of a word, then it's still easy to write the, the, the ending form because it doesn't have to connect to anything uh, next to it. And so that's the reason why uh, we have two forms of letters. The original form of the letter is not the regular one, is actually the ending one. And that's really fascinating. If you look in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you, you'll find that in some of them, it still uh, writes many words with a mem sofit in the middle of a word. All right, so it was not yet uh, systematized. And even in the, um, even in the um, Masoretic text, even in our Tanakh, you can find a couple of examples. Here's one from Yesha'ya uh, chapter 9. It says, You see the word marbe has Islamid, mem sofit, So there you go, a mem sofit in the middle of a word. And you can find this in our, even in our Tanakhs. Uh, this is uh, a leftover remnant of the time when a sofit, sofit letters were used even in the middle of the word. This is a keri uchtiv. It's written this way, but when it's the keti, the, that's the ketiv, but the keri uh, on the side says lamar with a regular mem. It's a funny keri uchtiv because it's pronounced exactly the same way, and it's exactly the same letter. But the point is that the keri is updating it to the standard form, and you do see the original form here. OK, so that's really fascinating. Now we say OK, still didn't answer the first question, which is that the prophets do not have authority to say something new. And the writing of a Torah, this is a, a law, and so you can't change it. So how could you tell me that, oh, we didn't know which one it was. And then the prophets instituted this new law. Rather, it must be that originally, the sofit letters were at the end, but then they got mixed up, and we didn't know where they were, and the prophets just uh, preserved, reestablished something that was there before. So it's not a new law, but rather the re-establishment of an old law. All right, second thing. The next thing that the same uh, set of sages says the translation, the official translation of the Torah into Aramaic that became accepted by the commun- by communities and was used and recited in the, in the Bet Knesset. The Yemenites still do that uh, after each pasuk. Uh, they used to translate into Aramaic. Um, this translation was done by Unkelus, the convert, uh, so, he was a student of Rabbi Eliezer Yoshua. They are second generation Tanaim. So, that would make Unculus um, uh, a student of theirs uh, around a contemporary of the Rabbi Akiva. Interestingly, in other sources, we know of a, another person called Akila, who is also uh, known as a convert, and he translated the Torah into Greek. And so, Akila and Unculus sound the same, and they both translated, although they different languages. So, they may very well be. The same person, and so that's interesting. He was a really good translator and knew a lot of languages. All right, the translation of the Nevi'im into Aramaic, and if you open up Mikraot uh, Gedolot, you'll find there Targum Yonatan, and so that was done by this Yonatan ben Uzi and he did it based on the last prophets, Chagai Malachi, although he didn't live back then. Uh, he lived much, uh, much, much, much later on, but it's a tra- tra- tradition from them. When he made this translation, the whole of Israel had an earthquake, a 400 by 400 parsa a giant earthquake. And uh, heavenly echo came and said, who uh, revealed my secrets to mankind? In other words, something about this uh, targum, targum is often not usually uh, often not a word for word translation, but also an explanation. And this uh, this uh, translation revealed some secrets and says, how, okay, "How dare you do that? Who did this?" says, "I'm the one that did it." And yes, I'm proud of it. And you know, I didn't do this for my own honor. So I could be remembered forever as the translator. Not for my father's family. I did it for you so that there will not be increasing factions. Among Israel. In other words, it must be that a lot of these, a lot of Pisukim and Nevi'im were difficult to understand and people were having arguments about them. I think there's something more than just simply different understandings. Uh, you see that Nevi'im were actually very important for sectarians like the Dead Sea sect and uh, um, other people who were predicting the, the future and uh, the end of days, uh, because a lot of Nevi'im do talk about that. And so they would explain Pesukim in such a way. And so Yonatan wanted to prevent that and prevent people from interpreting these Pesukim in far out apocalyptic ways, messianic predictions. And so he translated, he gave an official translation so that there will not be sectarianism in Israel. I did it L'Shem Shamayim. And so by doing that, he had to reveal uh, certain interpretations and wanted to continue and also translate Ketuvim, but the Bat-Kol says, enough, uh, you, you revealed too much. Uh, so what's the reason? Because, spe- especially in the book of Daniel, Daniel gives a whole, has a whole uh, section where he says the, the redemption is going to be in 70 times, seven, seven years, 490 years, and everybody after that is always looking at those words and trying to figure out, calculate when Mashiach is going to be. And if he had translated that section, he might have revealed something about it. The rabbis were against anybody uh, predicting when Mashiach comes because usually they're wrong. So far, every prediction so far has been wrong. So, and, and that also leads to false hope. And so therefore, uh, this uh, Yonatan was prevented from talking about Daniel. All right now question torah is it true that unkelus is the one that said that that made the translation of the torah we have a source from Nehemiah that there was already a translation way before Nehemiah is living in 450 bce a good um a good five, more than 500 600 years before unkelus so what do you mean that he wrote it mikra. Uh, in uh, where it talks about Ezra came and he presented the Torah and read it to everyone. Um, and so they read when they, they read the Torah and they explained it and gave understanding um, so that everyone would understand the reading. Um, so, there's a lot of words here. What does each refer to? So, reading is just a plain reading. Meforash means giving, giving that Aramaic translation. So, there you go. There already was an Aramaic translation 600 years earlier. And giving sense to, to understand the um, punctuation. Here's where you put a period. To understand it better, that's the ta'amim, the cantillation notes that tell you where to accent it and where to separate which words go together with which. Of course, this doesn't mean that the, the, the signs that we have, the signs that we have are much later from, uh, from like the 700s. You have a rabia and shofat holech, all that. But nevertheless, the tradition of where to put the pauses and how to chant it, that is part of Torah Shabal and is very old. Others say that this refers to the, the, the tradition about how to write the certain letters and words that are in big or small um, and uh, how to spell things and counting of how to spell different words. All that was already known there. So that's the question. Since they already had a translation in Aramaic, what do you mean that Unkelus is the one that wrote it? And the answer is the same as before. They had an ancient translation into Aramaic. It was forgotten and Unkelus re established it. And that gives it even more authority. He didn't just make it up on his own. What's the difference between the translation of the Torah, where there was no earthquake? It was like, yeah, that's fine. You're translating it. Whereas regarding the prophets, Everything did. Uh, there was this earthquake, and the bat call that says, You know, who's revealing my secrets? What's the difference? Because the Torah, everything is clear in the Torah. We know, we know what everything means in Torah. We have, uh, you know, we have uh, commentaries and so we can explain it all so that Targum is not revealing anything new that we didn't know before. Whereas, regarding the Viim, there are some matters that are clear and some there are things that are not clear. Here's one example of a pasuk that we don't know what this means. It says, in that day in the future, Zechariah is prophesying, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning of Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megidon. We don't know. We, we we don't know who this is. What were they? What were they uh, uh, mourning about? And what is this pasuk referring to? If you look at Ibn Ezra here, so he says this is referring to some ancient practice that we don't have, we know. We don't have access to anymore. Uh, the uh, uh, historians say Hadad Zimon. This name is uh, is a name of a uh, West Semitic uh, pagan. Uh, uh, uh gods uh, maybe like a storm god and this refers to some ancient pagan tradition that they would mourn over uh they you know maybe that the season's passing or something like that and so this was a well-known thing and so Zechariah says there's going to be great morning like that, that that great morning but we don't know really what it's referring to in any case why is Zechariah referring to some kind of pagan tradition that seems strange so if not for targum on this pasuk, we wouldn't know what it was talking about. And here, here's what the targum says. He says, on that day in the future, there's going to be a great morning in Jerusalem, like the morning that happened when Achav, the king of Israel was killed by some person named Hadadrimon ben Tabrimon. Amat Gilad, and it happened there in Gilad. And also, in the times of the future, there will be great mourning, like the mourning done for King Yoshiah, the great, the good king of Judea, uh, who was killed by Pada. The, 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 the lame one in the valley of Megiddo. Okay, these two stories are stories we know about. Uh, they have something in common, which is that they're both about kings of Israel or Judea that were killed in battle while the king was um, uh, making, was uh, dressed as someone else. Achav, an evil king, Yoshia, a great king. And uh, tragically, Yoshiah um, you know, went out against Padoh. We saw this recently, who just wanted to pass through the, the land, and Yoshia fought, fought in battle against him and then lost. Okay, so these were tragic events in, the, in which all of Israel was mourning over their king, and so in the future, there's going to be mourning like that. And so what you see is that uh, in the original pasuk, Hadad Rimon, in Bikad Migidon is actually referring to two different things. And so we're reading it more um, allegorically and uh, uh, with reference to um, not, uh, not a, a mourning over a person in Hadarimon, but something that he did mourning over Israel. And that's, this, makes, this brings the, analogy, the, the uh, references into something that we do know and explains the pasuk. And so here's an example of if we didn't have the targum, we wouldn't be able to understand this pasuk at all. Okay, now another tradition in the name of the same sage. Beraiti, right? We saw already two of them. Uh, the ending letters, we just talked about the translation of Yonatan ben Oziel. Uh, by the way, if you open up, uh, some, uh, sometimes you have in, in, in uh, for the Torah, a uh, Targum Yonatan. But it's not true, Yonatan only, uh, only translated Nevi'im. Uh, what you find there is really uh, what we call pseudo-Jonathan. It's not really Yonatan. What happened is there's another Targum besides Unkul. It's called Targum Yerushalmi because it comes from Eretz Israel. And uh, some printers, it was written Taf Yod and Taf Yod standing for Targum Yerushalmi. But they misunderstood it and wrote Targum Yonatan instead. So if you ever see Targum Yonatan on the Torah, you should know it's not actually Yonatan. Okay, so now the third thing he says is about one of Daniel's visions. Daniel says, I saw this uh, frightening scene. He sees a man with uh, fiery eyes, and uh, he says, the other people that were with me didn't see, even though I saw it looks like this man was right in front of me. Only I saw it. They didn't see it, but they did have a tremendous trembling. So they had some sense that there was something there, even though I was the only one that could see it. And those people that were with me went and ran away and hid themselves. Okay. Who were the people that were with Daniel when he had this vision? There we go. Here's our uh, tradents. Either said this, or some say said this. These are the three later prophets. Uh, that were, um, around during the uh, Persian period and, uh, therefore, uh, con- well, somewhat contemporary with the setting of Daniel. Okay, that's who was with him. Now, they, th- those prophets had something that, one aspect that was greater than him, Daniel, and Daniel was, was also in what, in some sense, greater than those three prophets. Those three people, Zechariah, and Malachi, they were full fledged prophets. Uh, they're um, all mentioned in Tereh Asad. Whereas Daniel was not a prophet. This is a very important line saying Daniel was not a prophet. After all, his book is not found in Nevi'im, but rather in Kituvim, which indicates a lower level of Ruach HaKodesh. Um, also, even though he has visions and dreams, and so certainly some kind of divine communication. One difference between Daniel and all the prophets is Daniel is not sent on a mission to go tell people, you know, you should make teshuvah, you should do something. And so that seems to be a key characteristic of a navi that he doesn't have. So that's in the sense in which they are better. <inaudible> Nevertheless, even though they were navim and he wasn't, he was able to see this vision and they were not able to. So, question: If they couldn't see it, why were they afraid? And the answer is: it says even though they didn't see it consciously, but their mazal, their constellation, their guardian angel or uh, uh, daimon, you might say, uh, there some sense uh, uh, that that uh, some force. Uh, they weren't conscious of, didn't know. Uh, so maybe today we would call this their subconscious, right? And they had a sense that there's something wrong here, even though they didn't know what it was. And that's why they ran away. Uh, So this this shows you that if you feel frightened for some reason, and even though you don't know why, you don't see anything, even though you don't see something, one's uh, guardian angel, one's mazal, is what is sensing something there. So what should you do to get out of that? That's a good uh, protection. For any uh, bad forces, if you're sitting, if you're in a place that smells, you not allowed to say Shema. Then try to um, uh, move away four cubits to get away from the danger. That spot is dangerous. Try to try to escape from there. And if you can't do that. Uh, you can say this formula. That means that is the goat of the slaughterhouse is fatter than mine. In other words, if some demon is or force is coming after you, so you say, what do you want me for? I'm just a skinny, you know, skinny bones. Go to that. Look at that goat. It's fatter. Go and give your put your punishment upon the goat. And that's uh, tastier than I am. All right, so that's some uh, some good advice to get away from scary thoughts. Okay, medina. Now we get to the halakhic section of uh, of uh, today, which is we're going to see that megillah reading megillah overrides sacrifices. It also overrides the learning of Torah, and then we're going to get into. A hierarchy that honor of Torah is more important than reading Megillah, which is more important than public study of Torah, which is more important than sacrifices, which is more important than the private study of Torah, and after all that, we're going to say, what about mit mitzvah? Where does that fit in? Okay, so let's see. Um, on yesterday's daf, we explained what the doubling of medina medina irva ir, ir is. Backum, it also says mishpacha mishpacha every family. What does that come to teach us? This teaches us that the families of the, of the Kohanim and Leviim, those families who take turns and are serving in the Beit HaMikdash, when it's time for the reading of the Megillah, they stop whatever they're doing and they go and hear Megillah. Right, all everyone who's involved in the temple service, uh, and this one adds also Yisrael, they're reading the, the, the special readings for the Ma'amad. They all stop what they're doing and they come and listen to Mikram Megillah. Okay, great. We have a B'raita that backs us up. Uh, same exact words, um, almost same exact words, and except this is now a brayta instead of a statement just only in the name of Rav. Based on this brayta, the house of Rabbi. The, they would stop the study session, stop learning Torah, and go and listen to, to the reading of the Megillah. And they figured it's a kalvachomer from the temple service. If the temple service, the sacrifices which are very important and yet the reading Megillah overrides it, so all the more so Torah, which is lesser, of lesser value than the sacrifices, all the more so. Okay, now you can already predict that the rabbis aren't going to let this go. What? Temple service is more important than Tamu Torah? For the rabbis, right? Tamu Torah is much more important and more important than everything. So, Ev torah, Is that true? That temple sacrifices are more important than studying of Torah? And now we're going to learn this from a conversation between Yahushua Yoshua from the time of Moshe when he was in Yericho, and an angel that appeared to him. And we're also going to go in a little tangent about this conversation. Before Yoshua was going to conquer Yericho, he saw in front of him um, uh, a man, but turned out to be an angel, and uh, Yoshua bows down before this angel. And this is where he says, this is a holy place. Take off your shoes. Okay. <ownershobe> Side point. How could he bow down to this being? <orithmusho> <the> ben <Bible> <moratorium> says, you're not allowed to, by the way, we're going to see a series of statements in his name at the end of today's death. He says, you're not allowed to say hello to someone using the name Shalom. Shalom is a, also a divine name. And you can't do that at night because maybe the this person uh, saying hello to you is actually a shed. And so you shouldn't confront the shed. Um, so that's the question. As you know who this is. He uh, asked him, who are you? And he says, I am uh, the captain of the army of Hashem. So there you go. He's not a demon. He's, he's a good guy wait a second maybe he's lying. maybe it really is a demon and the demon of course no no demon would say I'm a demon he would say I'm someone that you could trust even demons follow the rules and even the demon would not say God's name in vain and here he Hashem." so that's why he knew he could trust that he's not a demon and that's why he was able to say shalom to this angel. okay good. now Amarlo, what was the point of the angel coming? Uh, in the uh, Navi, it doesn't uh, it doesn't give any a long conversation, but the Rabbis fill it in. The angel comes to Yeshua and says, "Yesterday you didn't do the the korban tamid offering. Why didn't do the why did why didn't they do that? Well, maybe they were traveling, preparing for war, so uh, they weren't able to." Uh, to set up the mishkan, and they didn't, uh, didn't have time. Okay, that's one bad thing you did, but now you're not reading, you're not learning Torah, um, even though you're fighting, so you're fighting during the day. Uh, at night, you have, you have some time in between. You should be studying Torah. Uh, that's what the angel came to tell Joshua. So Yeshua says, well, which one in particular are you coming to rebuke me about? Is it about the not doing sacrifice or about the not learning Torah? But there's a good proof for yeshivot, right? yeshivot where they study Torah and they fight in the army. They do both. So he says, now I came. I came after the second one because you stopped learning Torah. And so immediately Yoshua went and slept that night in the valley. So literally, it just means he slept in the valley. But we are learning, taking this to mean, He went and delved into the depth of the study of Torah. Uh, this pasuk is not actually a pasuk. It's a combination of two different pasukim, um, and, uh, from, and uh, which are after Yericho. Uh, so we're combining things happening before Yericho and after Yericho, putting it all together, to get this fun story. And what's the point of bringing this whole thing? It's to learn that Torah is more important than sacrifices, because after all, this angel comes to Yeshua to rebuke him not on the sacrifices, but only on Talmud Torah. Now that's the question, how come up above we said that the house of Ribiud Ha-Nasi, they stopped learning Torah to read Megillah, and they learned the Kav from uh, sacrifices. The Kav shouldn't be a Kav it's so the other way around, Torah is more important. And the answer is, Yachid. One's talking about the public study of Torah. On, in Yoshua, it's talking about on the national level, everybody's fighting, and now nobody's learning Torah. So for the national on uh, the national level study, study of Torah is more important than the korbanot, which are also on a national level. But if you're talking about one individual studying, then that's less important. And so the people of the house of the Nasi they were individual studying Torah, and so they should stop their learning and they should go and uh, and uh, hear Megillah because individual study is less important than sacrifices, and that explains the kava chomer. Okay, now we wonder, is this true? Is it really true that individual study is less important than sacrifices? The proof is going to be from the end of this Mishnah. It's Mishnah in Moed Katan. Uh, but the beginning of the Mishnah, we, we learn anyway, it says that um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a holiday, on a Moed, when we do sacrifice, when we do uh, um, funerals, and so, because we're going to bury people on Cholom Moed, and nevertheless, we limit the amount of sadness some to some degree. So uh, the women uh, during Cholom Moed, they lament, means they sing dirges, but they would not slap or clap. That's another mourning custom they would do is to kind of uh, slap their hands in mourning. Uh, so, do one but not the other. If those particular women were close to the coffin, then they would even slap, uh, slap their hands or their thighs. If it Rosh or Purim, not so these are of lesser status. And so, therefore, on those days, they may both uh, sing dirges and clap, but they should not wail. Generally, there, there would be women, and you even would be, have, have women that would be hired to be the professional whalers, uh, and then they would make everybody very sad and cry, and they would call do a call in response uh, with this. So that is not appropriate to do. On uh, on any of these days, regarding that Mishnah, Rabba Barhuna says that we don't we don't consider it a holiday if it come when it comes to the death of, death of a tamit Chacham. If a, if, a, if a sage dies, then we pull out all the whalers and we do everything even on even on Chole Moed all the more so on Chanukah u Purim. Now, if you mention your Purim, and you're saying that for the uh, burial of a Tamit Chacham, that overrides, 100% overrides Purim, that seems like it would include also the reading of the Megillah. And here, this is about one individual, one rabbi that died, uh, we, uh, we overrides the reading of, or overrides the whole Purim, including the reading of the Megillah. So, now, this is a challenge to what we said before, that only public tamu Torah is very important, but private tamu Torah is less important than, uh, than the temple service. Um, but here we see it's more important than even reading Migila. Okay, so that's the question. According to that, if you're learning Torah, you shouldn't interrupt your Torah learning, and you should not to, to go in and listen to Mikra Megillah. And the answer is, kevod Torah ka'amart. This is different. Here you're talking about the honor of Torah. Even the honor of an individual is very chamur, Because here we're honoring all the Torah that this person studied in his lifetime and all the Torah that he represents. That is a high status, similar to the Torah study of the of the masses. Even more, actually. Uh, so because you, you would you would um, attend this funeral ra- instead of going, reading, hearing Megillah, and that's different from the actual learning of Torah of an individual. That's just one hour of Torah study. So can you give up an hour of Torah study to go hear Megillah? Yes, because that is of lower status. And so that brings us to our hierarchy, the honor of Torah, which would be observed in a, in a funeral for a, a, a scholar, a Torah scholar, that would be the highest and would override reading Megillah. Reading Megillah overrides Even the public study of Torah, um, that itself overrides sacrifices, and sacrifices override private study of Torah. Um, That's uh, based on what we just saw. And now we're going to ask a question about mit mitzvah, a body that one finds in the middle of the street that no one is there to bury it. Um, uh, and you have, at the same time, you have to do some other mitzvah, which one is more important? adif. I know that regarding sacrifices or reading Megillah, reading Megillah is more important. We just said that. barchanina. Tamut Torah Regarding learning Torah, or reading Megillah reading Megillah is more important, right, the house of the Beodanasi, they would stop their study and go learn. So I know that already. If it's ver- regarding, I'm learning Torah and I see a dead body that needs to be buried, I have to go and bury it. Um, after all, we have a B'raita that says we stop learning Torah in order to bury the dead and to uh, um, celebrate a wedding. And we further learn that if there is something that has to do with a sacrifice versus a met mitzvah, then the met mitzvah is more important than the sacrifice. We learn this from the word that occurs regarding a nazir. A nazir cannot become tame, not even for a relative. And then the pasuk goes on and says... For example, not for his father, his mother, his brother, his sister. Nazir has to be, uh, cannot be ritually impure. And now, why does he have to tell us that he can't be impure for his, uh, for these relatives if it already said in general he can't become impure uh, for any dead body? So we learn something special from each of these words. And when it comes to the sister, we learn that. Why do you have to tell me that he can't become tameh if his sister dies? (laughs) So I already know from the general rule that he would not become, he cannot become Tameh. So it comes to teach us another case. And the other case is when he's on his way to do Korban Pesach. To go on Pesach, you have to be Tahor. Or another mitzvah of doing Brit Milah for his son. And all of a sudden, he hears that a relative of his dies. So can he go and be Tameh? And then he will lose out on doing korban Pesach, so that's why it says lo He should not become tameh and lose out on doing the mitzvah. <laughs> all right, that's regarding if he has korban Pesach versus uh, uh, versus a relative, and we're assuming here that that relative has someone else who can do the burial. So he doesn't have. To, it's not like she's not going to be buried at all. Someone else is doing it, so he doesn't have to stop. Well, his his, uh, korban. Here's how you learn that met mitzvah is more, that that a regular thing, a regular burial uh, is, um, doing korban is more important than a regular burial. And now, can I learn that that's true for a regular burial? Maybe also for a met mitzvah, I'm on my way to go and do korban pesach, and I see a body in the street that no one is burying. Can I just pass by it? Because I don't want to become tameh. So we learn from here that only for a sister who someone else can bury, even though it's his sister, he does not He does not need to become Tameh. But if it's a Met Mitzvah, then it's not included and it needs to become Tameh. Okay, that was a long derivation and the point of all that was um, that regarding Tamud Torah and Met Mitzvah, Met Mitzvah is more important uh, than Tamud Torah just as it's more important than uh, doing avoda. Okay, all that, Rava says, I have sources for. But here's, that was all introduction to his question. Here's his question. If I'm going to read Migila and I see a body that needs burial, should I bury the body and miss out on Megillah? On the one hand, maybe reading Migila is better, more important, because that publicizes a miracle. That's a public need. Or maybe burying the dead is more important because it has to do with the human, human dignity. You're going to leave out a body? It's not nice. So He asked the question first, and then he figured out an answer. And his answer is Bet adif, better to bury the body and miss out on Mikra Megillah. The honor of the dead is more important is that it's so important that it even overrides a negative prohibition in the Torah. So if it overrides a negative prohibition in the Torah, then certainly it will override a positive of reading Megillah. Okay, good. And uh so that ends this section. And our answer here is that Met Mitzvah is, in fact, even more important than the public reading of the Megillah. And now we're going to go back to a statement of Rabbi Yosha ben Levi and analyze it and a series of the statements. We mentioned that a walled city and anything nearby and anything that can be seen from the walled city has the same law as the walled city and would read on the 15th. And Tosefta uh, adds, if it's nearby, even if it can't be seen, if it can be seen, even if it's not nearby. Now, how could you have such a case? It can be seen, even though it's not close by, For example, if someone lives at the top of a mountain uh, near that walled city, so since it's on top of a mountain, you have good visibility and they can see, but it might not be actually nearby, right? We saw before that nearby could be defined as one meal, a kilometer. So you could be more than a kilometer away, but still be considered part of the city because you can see it. How can you have a case where you're nearby, but you can't see it? For example, if you're living in a valley, and so the valley might be right outside the city walls, but because you're low down, you can't see the walls. And nevertheless, that would be included um, as if you're in the city and read on the 15th. Next statement. We have a walled city that first was settled without a wall, and only later they added a wall to it, that is like a kfad. it's like a village, like an unwalled city, that doesn't count um, because it has less importance, right? Usually you, you know, you, you, it's like an afterthought. If it was really that important, then you'd establish it as a walled city in the first place and we learn this from another law in the Torah itself in Vayikra, where it does talk, uh, distinguish between walled cities and outside if someone sells a house in a walled city then they only have a year to redeem it back if they want it back after that it goes forever to the new owner even during your veil it doesn't go back to the original owner so that's another law in which you have to know is it a walled city or not and by the way, the Talmud does say over there also that we define walled city, a wall from the time of Yosho binun, also for that law. So that's interesting. And so here, uh, we, we learn that it has to be, um, in this pasuk, it looks like if you buy a house in a walled city. So it sounds like it was walled. And then he built the house there, and not the other way around that he's lived there and then built the wall. So therefore has to be an initially walled city. And next law from the same sage, even if you have a walled city, but you don't have 10 idle people in it. Um, uh, if, you have, if you have a big enough city, important enough city, then there'll be 10 people, have nothing to do. They hang out in the Bet Knesset. Anybody comes and needs a Minyan, they know there's a Minyan there. And so that would, that's one feature that is required in order for something to be called a walled city. What's he teaching us? We already know this from the the Tanena, Ezohi, Eid Gedola, Ba Asara, Batlanin, a He says, what's a, What does it mean, a big city? Has to have 10, uh, 10 idlers, less than that. It's like a village. So the answer is, Oh, we want to know this regarding, uh, regarding a large city, that if the, even if the idol, the idlers happen to come from elsewhere, but they're not actually from that place, and so you have them, uh, but because they're not from there, it's still called a village. And that's the chidush that he's adding to it. And um, next one, If you have a walled city that was destroyed and then resettled, yes, it's still considered a walled city. Now, when you say destroyed, what do you mean? If it's just that the walls were destroyed, then in only if it was resettled, okay, but if it was not resettled, meaning the wall's rebuilt, then you wouldn't consider it a walled city. The same pasuk that we were talking about before regarding the selling a house in a walled city, there's a kri there. It says, asher lo... And uh, it's written, lo lamed vav Alif, that it has no wall, even though we read it without. Even we read it as if it has a vav, um, that it has a wall. So interesting, the kri and the khtiv are actually opposite uh, in meaning. So what's what do we derive from two opposite meanings here? So even though it has no wall now, since it had a wall, it's still considered a walled city. And this is really important because, like, um, uh, the, you know, I don't, Jerusalem even now doesn't have a full wall, the full ancient wall that it had in the time of Joshua. but because it was once walled, it's still considered walled. So therefore, what does he mean? That's to say that it was destroyed and rebuilt only if it was rebuilt, that is considered like a walled city? That's not true. Even if the wall is not rebuilt, it's still considered a walled city. Rather, what, we, what he must mean is that a city, a walled city that had 10 idlers, and then it lost those idlers and then it's treated like a village. If the idlers come back again, then we'll treat it like a walled city once again. And so we'll have even more statements by the Navi tomorrow.